Welcome to Godsplaining, contemplative preachers, contemporary age. Each week, join the Dominican friars as they consider all things Catholic. Hello, folks. Welcome back to Godsplaining. I am Father Gregory Pine, uh, hosting here with Father Jacob Bertrand on our most recent episode of Guestplaining. Father Jacob Bertrand, how are things in D.C.? Things are good. Yeah, pretty standard. Working through the academic year, working through vocation stuff, surviving the swamp. That's it. <laughs> <laughs> nothing more, nothing less. Yeah, nice. the huge. Mm -hmm. Okay. You've navigated yeah. the summer without suffering yeah. heat stroke or exhaustion or any heat-related, you know, accidents of sorts yeah. uh, for which Exhaustion we are grateful from from lack of sleep but not heat so <laughs> are things in switzerland oh uh, they're good yeah i mean lack of sleep is our common course and um i don't so much sleep we say as wait for morning but you know whatever things here are as they have been and we're grateful for that at a recent sojourn to the united states uh so i'll take any opportunity to sit in seat 43b on a united airlines flight surrounded by my two closest friends who have many questions about Eastern metaphysics. So another great installment with my favorite carrier, but you have no desire to hear any of those things because you listener clicked on this episode because there was another name that was not Gregory or Jacob Bertrand. It was one <laughs> far more important and far more telling. Uh, so we're very delighted on this episode to welcome Bishop Barron. Uh, so Bishop Barron, thanks so much for joining us on the show. Thank you. I'm delighted. I, I love the international uh, quality of the show. We go from Washington to Switzerland to Santa Barbara. So that's pretty good. It is indeed. I think we're, we're spanning nine time zones, which yeah. might be a record. So we thank you for bringing us into a new phase of God's planning. <laughs> Always expanding. Very good. Yeah, that's right. Um, so I guess by way of introduction, I suspect that um, many of our viewers, most of our viewers, all of our viewers, all of our viewers and all of their families know who you are. Um, so perhaps you could maybe just fill us in a little bit on the most recent ventures of your apostolate word on fire things that have been happening recently, um, things that you're most excited about, things that, uh, that we should know about. Yeah, good. Thank you. Um, I have a lot of things. One would be this uh, new book on the creed that I wrote during COVID. So I've been working on this book. Um, it was kind of on the back burner, and I was you know, preoccupied with all sorts of pastoral responsibilities and traveling and all that. So it wasn't moving along very quickly. But then COVID hit, and suddenly I wasn't traveling, I wasn't going to meetings, and I had this wonderful... Uh, more contemplative time, and I managed to finish this book on the Nicene Creed. So that came out just a few weeks ago. And also during COVID, we filmed uh, six talks. I think each one's about 45 minutes based on the book. So they're just kind of walking through the Nicene Creed. We filmed them in beautiful places out in my neck of the woods and two of the missions, and then this beautiful church in, in Montecito, California. So they're beautiful looking films, and I think they'd be useful too a lot of people in parochial settings, adult education settings, RCIA, anyone that wants to be introduced to the Catholic faith. So that's out, that project on the Creed I'm very excited about. Um, a whole slew of books. A number of my books that were published previously by other publishing houses, we actually bought the rights back to them. So my book on the Eucharist, a book called The, the Strangest Way, a book called The Now I See, a book of sermons that have been published. So we repackaged all these in beautiful new hardcover editions, and they've just come out. So I'm very excited about that. People interested in these books maybe that had forgotten about them or you know, they're, they're eager just to see um, some things I, I'd written some years ago. Um, 
Also, the Word on Fire Bible Volume 2 is coming out in January. Um, we were super proud of that. It came out, what, over a year ago now. Volume 1 was the Gospels, and um, it's a beautiful book. It's the Gospel text, but then uh, glosses and commentaries from the great tradition and beautiful works of art. So it's a kind of a meditative, contemplative way to read the Bible. So Volume 2, which is the rest of the New Testament, is coming out shortly. So, um, you know, a lot of things are, are cooking. Great. Um, so our, our particular kind of point of contact with your team was regarding the book on the Eucharist. Uh, and both Father Jacob Bertrand and I read that most recently, which was a great gift for us. Um, and you said that, you know, it had been previously published and the rights bought back for it with, you know, some, some edits and some expansion. And, and certainly we'll get into that later in the show. But maybe, um, yeah, by way of leading into that more specific topic, we could just talk about things contemporary, things Catholic more generally. Um, so in sure. terms of Catholic mission, a lot of people in the United States and beyond look to you uh, for, for cues, I suppose, or for a kind of indication. Um, maybe in this time when many people feel <laughs> on the brink of despair, they look, for, they look to you for, for hope. Um, and I think maybe, maybe one of the things presently that is met, like a lot of folks find dispiriting or discouraging is that it's, it can be very polemical, it can be like very political. And I think we sometimes risk um, assuming a kind of polarized caricature of Catholic life and worship. And this is something that yeah. you, know, you, you touched on a little bit in the Eucharist book. So, you know, traditional Catholics are said to not care about social justice because it's, it's too liberal and more social justice oriented types um, think about doctrine as too kind of hoity-toity or highbrow. Um, so how do you, uh, in your mission and Word on Fire and what you do more broadly, how do you seek to kind of like maintain and grow the integrity of your apostolate in this, in this current environment? Well, you know, my touchstone is uh, your hero, St. Thomas Aquinas. Uh, I mean, I, I kind of again, went through a reawakening of my Catholic faith as a kid by discovering Aquinas. And he's been, um, your French teachers would call the Pierre de Touche for the rest of my life. He's always my touchstone figure. Um, how did Thomas do his work? Well, I mean, a deep engagement of the culture, to be sure. And the culture of his time was a very vibrant one intellectually. Had elements of opposition to Christianity, elements that he appreciated as conducive to the proclamation of the gospel. And Thomas, from the standpoint of Jesus Christ, read the culture of his time, taking in what he could, resisting what he had to. And I think that's the model of all great uh, theologians. I, the same was true of, of um, Augustine. The same is true of John Henry Newman. The same is true of John Paul II. The same is true of one of my personal heroes, uh, Cardinal George of Chicago, who, you know, one of his central themes was the evangelization of the culture. And he just knew every culture is evangelically ambiguous. You know, it's got positive elements and it's got negative elements. And the, the canny evangelizer reads, as Vatican II said, the signs of the times, doesn't cave in to the times, doesn't hide behind walls, but engages the culture in a Christ-centered and critical way. So from Aquinas on, that's been my model of how to do it. You're right that we have um, opposing camps who fall into those two extremes, I would say. One, and I would identify it as a Catholic progressivism or, or liberalism, that has caved in too much to the culture, uses the culture as the measuring uh, stick. 
Well, the church ought never to do that. We don't allow Christ to be read by the culture. It's just the opposite, right? Um, by the same token, there is a kind of hyper-defensive, uh, hyper-traditionalist Catholicism that wants Karl Barth, who's from your country there in Switzerland, said uh, the church ought never to be hiding behind Chinese walls. And I've always liked that. The church's job is not to hunker down behind walls defensively because Jesus said, go out, go out to all the nations and proclaim the good news. So we're not like just hanging on to a little treasure for our own private edification. So neither Chinese walls nor a surrender to the culture, but a Christ-centered, critical and intelligent engagement of the culture. Now, I, I mean, Thomas is my model. I'm no Thomas Aquinas, but I, I've been trying to do something along those lines. Now, the culture is complicated today. Um, we all know that. But I think the general principles have remained the same uh, from, from the church fathers and Thomas on. Yeah, so thinking about the, I guess, the relationship between the caving in and the engaging and where we stand I guess in relation to modernity, um, there's always, I find, well, not always maybe, but I often get asked the question in conversations with men who are interested in, in the order. Um, you know, the Dominicans, St. Dominic founded the order around the preaching against the Albigensian heresy. What's the, what, are, what are Dominicans preaching against now? And one of my answers is always, well, uh, the church was preaching against this heresy. Um, and Dominic saw a unique way to do that. And so too today that, you know, we're, it's one team, the church is working in, in different ways to, to, to preach the truth. But in a sense, you know, where, how much, how much should we be reading uh, the signs of the times? You know, where, where do you think the church stands right now in relationship to secular modernity? Are we kind of retreating too much? Are we not doing it? I guess, what, what do you see as sort of avenues or areas of, um, I guess, offense that we can, that we can continue to preach well, charitably, but also boldly without, you know, getting overrun by this and that and everything else. Yeah, uh, it's good. I mean, you're, you're laying out the, the principles that obtain, you know, across the board. We engage it. I, I like that word because it, it, it doesn't mean cave in, doesn't mean run away from, you engage it uh, with critical intelligence and in light of Christ. I go back to uh, one of my intellectual heroes was, um, is Monsignor Robert Sokolowski from Catholic U, from your neck of the woods. Uh, and years ago, when I was a kid taking his class, he said, the once integrated Catholic culture at, let's say, the, the Reformation and the Enlightenment uh, blew up, and the pieces of it landed here and there, <laughs> often in twisted form after an explosion, and now disintegrated one from the other. But they're still there. And part of the task of the evangelist is to notice them and to highlight them and then try to bring them back into something approaching uh, an integrated state. So I, I, I've used that metaphor in my own work. Uh, I began when I was doing YouTube commentaries years ago with movies. And the very first one I did was Martin Scorsese's The Departed. And it's a movie that I think uses the F word about 8,000 times, you know, and it, it features <laughs> violence. And, and so people would say, why in the world are you commenting on a movie like that? But see, it, it, the inspiration was, I think there are elements in a movie like that. And, and Scorsese is a good example because he has a Catholic formation. And there are elements of integrated Catholic vision there, now in distorted form, to be sure. But I think worth pointing out, and a positive way to engage people that might never darken the door of a church, but they might well go to a Scorsese movie. 
And if they have a, a at the time I was, it wasn't a bishop, a priest of the church saying, hey, there's something there that is at least, uh, you know, resonant with the gospel. That's, I think, not a bad way to do it. Now, are there elements of our culture that are deeply repugnant to Christianity? Absolutely. And the church's job is to engage those in a much more critical spirit. I often put my finger on what I call the culture of self-invention. Um, that's one of the marks of secular modernity, especially in our, in our American context, is I invent values. It's, it's Jean-Paul Sartre. It's existentialism now run amok. It's existence precedes essence. So I decide. I decide what's true. I decide what's valuable. I decide my own body. I decide my gender. Don't you tell me anything. I make all the decisions around here. See, but that's deadly stuff, as you well know. And that's, that's modern liberalism run amok, run to its most irrational extreme. The church says, no, it's not about your self-invention. You belong to a story. You belong to God's great theodrama, to use Balthazar's language from Switzerland. Uh, but I, I think that's the place I would very critically engage the contemporary culture is practically every movie, practically every song, practically every expression of the popular culture celebrates self-invention. And you don't tell me what to do. Uh, well, that's repugnant to anything like discipleship. When Jesus says, no, come follow me. Your, your life is not about you. It, it's about following me, finding yourself by losing yourself in discipleship. So that's repugnant to so much of the modern uh, style. And the church has to stand athwart that. Uh, so again, it's a both and. We look for the pieces of a once integrated Catholic culture and we try to point them out and say, hey, hey, that's worth looking at and that's interesting and good, good. Look for the fathers called those semina verbi, right? The seeds of the word. Uh, that's Sokolowski simply updating and, and changing the metaphor there, but uh, that's part of what we do. And then we also stand athwart these things and say no uh, to certain parts of the culture. So it's both and, and um, there are camps that want to do one or the other. So uh, to follow up on this image of uh, Father Sokolowski or Monsignor Sokolowski's, um, if we're recovering parts of the tradition, which has been in a certain sense exploded, I think you're also of the image with which um, Alistair McIntyre begins after virtue that he takes there from yeah. Canticle of Leibowitz. Um, I feel like a lot of us, um, in our recovery of the tradition, we're a little bit afraid of the arbitrary. It's like, why recover this and not recover that? Or uh, for what reason have I chosen to recover this? And I think there, there's a kind of lurking threat of the self-invention that you describe, but it's a self-invention that is closer to the mark and maybe as a result, a little more seductive. So we sometimes joke about like the, prefer the preferential option for the old. Like this thing is better because... It, it, yeah. it was before the Second Vatican Council and was thrown away, so therefore we should recover it somewhat uncritically because it seems like that's the thing to do these days. Um, so in place of this culture of self-invention, how do we receive our identity? Like, uh, what does it mean to recover a tradition or what does it mean to recover an identity in a way that's genuine, that's organic, that's sincere, that's good? We, the, I'll tell you the answer. It's you Dominicans. And what I mean is, what's your motto, right? Veritas. 
Here's an exceptionally clarifying question. It's as simple as could be, but it's exceptionally clarifying in regard to the question you raise. Namely, yes, but is it true? I often find that you're in these debates with people or dialogues or whatever it is, and a point's being made, and you're saying, yeah, it's from this era, and yeah, it's old, or yeah, it's new, or yeah, it's in the culture, or yeah, it's against the culture. Mm-hmm. Yes, but is it true? That's the only thing that matters at the end of the day. Because, look, if I'm a, I, 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 I idolize the ancient tradition, and I say, oh, I love all old things. Well, good for you, but is it true? Or... Do Catholic progressivism. Oh, I think the culture today, I just love what's going on in the church and the modern world. And Okay, but is it true? <laughs> That's the only question that matters. And so that, you guys, and with your lovely black and white, you know, with your, the lovely black and white Dominican, because not every question is black and white, but by God, that one is. Is it true? And so Dominican truth and to keep bringing that question to the fore. Because I think of, um, of Whitehead sometimes and his famous line about the fallacy of misplaced concreteness is that we look in the wrong places for what's concrete. We privilege, again, the old, the new, the cultural, the anti-cultural, the, you know, whatever, whatever. But who cares? Is it true? That's the clarifying question. And... Uh, um, Oh, I, I'm, I, I'm very wary of you because you, you don't seem to like uh, older things. Is it true? I'm wary of you because you don't seem open to the culture. Is it true? <laughs> and so, see, and I've, I've been arguing now for years that we have to teach our culture, our Catholic culture again, how to have an argument. And there it go, you Dominicans, see, this, it's your moment. I told you guys that when I ordained Dominicans, what was it, a couple years ago, it's a great privilege. The first priests I ordained were the young Dominicans two, three years ago. And I said to them, and I meant it, I said, this is your moment. This is a Dominican moment in the culture because you need to teach people again in the Catholic space how to have arguments. Uh, when are you wasting your time? See, the, Aquinas with his, with his wonderful laconicism, it, it, it's his way of saying, no, no, that's a waste of time. That's a waste of time. That's a waste of your breath. Here's what we should be talking about. You know, the, the wonderful uh, kind of undecorative quality of Thomas's writing. But that's what he was doing. It's like cutting fat off of meat. He was cutting away all the extraneous to get to the question of, yes, but is it true? So I would urge Catholics, left, right, and center, to revisit that Dominican motto, <laughs> you know, yes, but is it true, is the only thing that matters at the end of the day. All right, end of rant. I apologize for <laughs> ranting. <laughs> not, not a rant in the least. Very encouraging uh, for us and for our listeners. Uh, but I mean that. <laughs> I don't know how many Dominicans listen to your podcast. Not many, but. but. <laughs> that, it's your moment. It's your yeah. moment, and you Dominicans oughtn't to be shy about it. Boom. Okay, well. On that note, we're going to take a short break here to hear a word from our imaginary sponsors. Uh, but when we return back, we'll pick up on this, on this vein of truth and try to dive a little bit into the teaching uh, concerning the Eucharist, which Bishop Barron has treated in this most recent book. So stick with us, and we'll see you on the other side of the break. You are listening to Godsplaining. Visit us at godsplaining.org to listen to our episodes, shop our store, and donate to our podcast. 
All gifts go to improving the podcast and bringing the gospel to more listeners. Thanks for your support. All right, folks, thanks so much for sticking with us on this episode of Guest Planning. We're very uh, grateful. We're very blessed to have with us uh, Bishop Robert Barron uh, speaking on the occasion of a release of his uh, most recent book on the Eucharist, uh, but also just to kind of give us a sense of what Word on Fire is about these days, but more broadly, the state of the life of the church in America and beyond uh, so that we can, uh, fortified by the grace of God, engage in these present struggles and do so for the glory of God. So enough for me. I think our next question is going to come from Father Jacob Bertrand. That's right. Yep, here I am. Uh, so at the top of the top of the episode, the first half of the episode, we spent some time talking about the different, um, you know, the the dichotomy between caving into the culture, engaging with the culture, how to engage with it. With your with your um, book that was republished on the Eucharist, um, there seems to be the Eucharist at least in the last six months has been a, a kind of hot button issue in the church, especially with the reception of communion and public figures and these sort of things. But in the book, you propose a number of ways or realities, um, uh, whether it's through theology or worship or life with, with the relationship between the Eucharist as meal, sacrifice, the presence of it for readers, listeners to sort of contemplate, to get to know the Eucharist um, better, the teaching, the truth on the Eucharist. So I guess question then, how how is this teaching, how is like revisiting the teaching on the Eucharist or encouraging people to, to think about the Eucharist anew? Um, helpful for navigating present difficulties in the church, in our own sort of, in our own faith, in our own approach to the Eucharist. How, how, yeah, what are, how does this kind of help the faithful, help those who, you know, aren't within the fold, but thinking about the Eucharist for whatever reason? Yeah, well, I hope it does, all that. Um, but, you know, my book goes back, I think it was 2008 I wrote that book, so a long time ago. I was a professor at Mundelein at the time. I was approached, uh, it was by Orbis, and they had a series on different aspects of the faith, and they proposed to me the Eucharist. Isn't it weird in, in God's providence? So I write that book. I wrote it, I think, in the course of a, I don't know, a summer, four or five months, maybe. And um, who would have known, though, that all these years later, we'd have the opportunity, Word on Fire didn't exist in those days, uh, but through Word on Fire to bring it out precisely at a time when I think this Eucharistic question is so central. And for two reasons. One is, you say, the whole debate about politicians and, and worthy reception of the Eucharist, but also in the wake of the Pew Forum study. And I'll say this, I'm the one that rang the bell at the Bishop's Conference. So when that study came out, I don't know what, a couple years ago, that said 70% of Catholics don't believe in the real presence. Um, and I, I, it wasn't on the agenda at all, but it was at an administrative committee meeting. And I was chair of a committee at the time, so I was on that one. And uh, I said, I don't know, brothers, I, I just think this is a serious problem and that we ought to talk about it. And that started the ball rolling toward what we have now, this three-year proposal for a Eucharistic revival in all the dioceses of the country. I'll take some credit for that because I rang the bell and we got the ball rolling in that direction. So I think it's of supreme importance. If we're talking about the source and summit of the Christian life and 70% of our own people don't believe it? Or, you know, some some have said to me, oh, well, you know, I, I you're getting too worked up because it's not that they don't believe it, they just don't understand it. I said, well, that makes it better? <laughs> you, know, you think that solves the problem? That's just as bad. So it, it, something's gone deeply wrong if the source and summit of the Christian life is either massively misunderstood or massively unbelieved in, right? 
So that's what I said to my brother bishops, and I think they, they bought it and said, okay, we need to address it. So weirdly, again, through God's providence, this book, we have the opportunity now to bring it out at this, at this time. Look, my generation, we got meal like crazy. Everyone understood the Eucharist is a meal. I, I would. I mean, any Catholic who is what, even had the a modicum, we have two brain cells working in in the time I was coming of age, would say now, "Oh yeah, the Eucharist. That's a sacred meal," and we gather together around the holy table of the Lord to receive the the body of Christ. Everybody got that. Trust me. But what my generation did not get, again, trust me when I tell you, sacrifice language. We didn't get that. We we, we should move away from that. We didn't talk about altar. We talk about table. Uh, we didn't talk about the the offering of a of a sacrifice. We didn't get that. And as the pew form study, I think, has amply demonstrated, we didn't get real presence very well either. Uh, so I hope if there's a virtue to the book, it's bringing forward those latter two themes. What I tried to do in regard to sacrifice was to give it a a richly biblical um, background to show that this is not some arbitrary or some weird medieval accretion, that this is a very deeply biblical idea of offering sacrifice to the Lord. And why the um, New Testament authors, I mean, reached readily for this language of sacrifice. So I tried to show that. And then real presence. Heck, I used your, your man. I used St. Thomas Aquinas, who's still third part of the Summa. I don't know any better place that it's discussed. But my generation, nobody read that. Nobody knew that. It was never taught to my generation. Um, and my generation, we're now the leadership. <laughs> you know? So it's not surprising to me that there's a lot of bad understanding of the Eucharist. What makes us different than a Protestant church that gathers around the table of the Lord you know, symbolically to consume his body and blood. I think for a lot of Catholics, they, well, I don't know. Well, I don't know what the difference is. Um, that's a problem. So I hope this, and the book, I wrote it in very short compass. It's not like a major treatise. It's a short uh, study that's meant to be kind of punchy. Um, so I, I do hope people can use it to get at least a richer, more rounded understanding of what the Eucharist is about. So just a small follow-up question as we kind of come to the end of our time. Uh, in, in the book, I noticed that what we usually receive as source and summit, which we have, you know, in the most recent edition of the Catechism, you give an alternate translation of as something like fount and apex. I don't know. I mean, maybe specifically to those words that you choose or more broadly concerning our understanding of, of Eucharist as source and summit. Those are words that we often hear bandied about in Catholic conversation. Like, what, what is the faith that informs that profession? Like, how can we better appropriate that, pr- appropriate that profession? Like, what's at, what's at stake when we call it source and summit or, or fountain apex? Well, what's at stake is, is your boy again. Go back to Thomas Aquinas. Uh, the other sacraments have the virtus Christi, Thomas says. The power of Christ is in baptism and in, in reconciliation and the sacrament of the anointing. Virtus Christi. But the Eucharist, Aquinas says, is ipse Christus is Christ himself. There's a qualitative difference, therefore, between the other sacraments and the Eucharist. The other ones have the virtus Christi. This one is ipse Christus. And once you get that, well, then, of course, it's the source and summit of the Christian life because it's Christ himself. It's the Alpha and the Omega. 
It's where it comes from and where it's going. It's, it's, the, it's the anticipation of heaven because it's Christ himself. If you don't understand the real presence, you're not understanding that. Um, you don't understand that, you're not being drawn into the Christifying, deifying purpose of the church. You know, So, uh, of course it's source and summit because it's ipse Christus. And again, no one better than Aquinas at articulating that. Yeah. So I guess just a minute or two left. What would you, um, having this book on the Eucharist, or even just point about points about from the conversation that we have had, as far as drawing um, tips for drawing people or for people to be drawn more deeply into that Christifying reality of our of our faith of our church? What in and I guess such a polarized world and all the what what do you um, kind of recommend offered um, to to the to the laity to those listening? Yeah. Well, I think one thing would be begin with beauty. I often start with that because the true and the good are both very off-putting for people in the postmodern framework. Um, who are you to tell me what's true or what's good? But the beautiful, just show people. Look, and I think for the Eucharist, it's the Mass itself. Um, that's you know, I spent a lot of time in my work with uh, churches. Uh, I, I did a little book on Gothic cathedrals, and I've, I've used rose windows and, and the Gothic churches to, to make theological points. And that's part of it. Um, the very beauty of our churches, well, why are they so beautiful? Because we want to make pretty things? No, because it's, it's where the Eucharist happens, where the supremely beautiful uh, appears. So beauty can draw people in. So I, I would say that. Um, I'd also say Dominican truth, the clarity of teaching, that we're not shy about the Eucharist, that we're bold in our proclamation, clear in our articulation. You know, I'll give you an interesting example. Um, when this Pew thing came out, I changed the talk I was going to give at the famous L.A. Religious Education Congress, you know, this huge gathering of Catholics. And I, I was speaking in the arena, and I, I set aside whatever I was going to talk about. I said, I'm going to talk about the Eucharist. And I gave a a rip-snorting, hour-long talk and, and rehearsed the history of it. And I got very theological, spent a lot of time with Aquinas. And okay, good. And people, you know, I, I hope they enjoyed it. If you had told me that that video would become the single most popular video that Word on Fire has ever produced, I would never believe it. Mm. But in fact, it's true. It just pushed past like 1.1 million views. I would never have guessed, never, that that one... I've done you know eight minute commentaries on on popular movies, and I've done things on Jordan Peterson, and but that an hour long sustained kind of serious talk on the Eucharist would get 1.1 million views, but I, it it says something to me. That says something to me about Source and Summit, about the hunger for it, and about the virtue of a clear and deep presentation of the Eucharist. I, I don't think you're going to find an unreceptive audience to that kind of presentation. Bishop Aaron, thanks so much. This is, I mean, for me, it's very encouraging. I mean, just to hear it simply said that there is still a kind of correspondence between the mysteries as they are preached and the reception of the faithful. Um, yeah, I think sometimes, I don't know, I, maybe I speak for Father Jacob Bertram, maybe I just speak for myself, but it can feel like you're preaching not so much into a void, but you're saying things that you find interesting and you just hope that other people also find them interesting or also find them edifying, beatifying, whatever you might add. Um, but yeah, just to, to hear you simply say that for me is yeah very encouraging in our apostolate and our priesthood and, and our life more broadly. So thanks. 
Well, isn't it miraculous that you guys, after 800 years, you're still here in your, in your white habits proclaiming, you're preaching, you're preaching the truth. And it's a miracle, really, that you're still here and attracting young people such as yourselves to get you know, a, a solid education of the faith so that you can proclaim it. So just do it. As Shia LaBeouf would say, <laughs> just right. do yeah. it. Yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? There but you that's, go. you Dominicans especially, it's your moment. Okay. Amen. Hallelujah. All right, well, thank you so much again. Thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so much for contributing. And um, yeah, it's just very wonderful to have had you. Uh, a few closing announcements for our listeners. Uh, please do check out all the most recent things from Word on Fire. You'll want to check out that video for one on the Eucharist. Um, but mm -hmm. also I received an email recently from uh, Word on Fire regarding a book sale. So not only is the Eucharist book available at a reduced price, but so are others in addition and besides. Um, so thanks so much for, for liking, for sharing and for commenting on our, uh, you know, podcasts and videos. Uh, if you haven't yet shared a video or you haven't yet shared a podcast, perhaps this is the day. So click on the little thing that says share, and then just text it to one of your friends and you'll find a happy listener, a happy companion in 30 minutes time. Um, and if you're listening to, or watching on YouTube, please do subscribe so that you can yeah, be updated when, when other episodes like this come out. Uh, thanks again to all those who support us on Patreon. We're very grateful. Uh, we're very appreciative. We pray for you. Please continue praying for us. And then look for us on future episodes of guest planning, live planning, regular episodes, and uh, yeah, all else besides. So again, praying for you. Please pray for us. And we'll catch you next time on God's Planning. Thanks for listening to God's Planning, a work of the Dominican Friars of the province of St. Joseph. Follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram. Leave a review on your podcast app and visit us at godsplaining.org.